We're talking about John 9 today, and I actually want to start, rather than normally I would read the whole passage out, but actually uh, today's passage is really, really long, so I'm afraid I'm going to cheat slightly, and I'm just going to summarize it for you. Um, So one day Jesus is walking along, and he meets a blind man, and just like many, many times before, he heals a blind man. Again, just like many, many times before, the blind man goes around telling everyone, this guy Jesus healed me. But this time something unusual happens. When he tells the Pharisees, they get really annoyed. They say, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. You know, so they're so sure, in fact, that it's a trick that they actually go to his parents to try and you know, work it out. And when the parents don't have any of it, they go to the man himself and say, give glory to God. Go on, tell us. He is a sinner, isn't he? But you know, so the blind man is not, who now sees, is not willing to denounce the man that healed him. He says, look, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. You know, look, the Pharisees, they just can't take that. They curse him, they insult him, they even go so far as to chuck him out of a synagogue. So I want to read to you, I'm going to read a bit of scripture, I promise, the end of the story, just so we can hear exactly what Jesus says. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said this, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say that, and they said, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Father God, I just want to pray that as we um, sit under the authority of your word today, that you will speak to us. I pray that you uh, speak through me with your Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that your words are always better than my words. Um, Lord, I pray that your spirit will be with your people too. Lord, give them hearts to hear, soft hearts. Father, we just honor and worship you as we listen to what you've got to say today. Amen. So, it is a bit of a weird story, isn't it, to say the least? Because the start of the story is that a blind man receives his sight, and the end of the story is the blind man gets chucked out of the synagogue. Well, I know about you, that is, that's not really what I expected to happen. So I suppose the question is, how did it all go wrong? The reality sits underneath the story. The huge bust-up between Jesus and the Pharisees isn't so much to do with the healing as it is to do with kind of everything else that the Pharisees stand for. It's actually, I thought, it's a bit like one of those... TV marriages, I don't know if you like, everybody loves Raymond, maybe that's a bit ancient history, cultural reference there. Yeah, the old people got it. Um, So, you know, every argument ends in a screaming match about, you know, who broke the the best china and who keeps on leaving hair in the plug hole and all those things that I'm sure none of you have ever argued about with your partner. You know, the thing is, though, the barbs that the Pharisees aim at Jesus, they're actually just the same. They're really only on the surface. What lies underneath is that Jesus isn't really the Messiah that they're looking for. 
He doesn't play to their prejudices, he doesn't validate their status, and he doesn't flatter their egos. Actually, quite the opposite. However much the Pharisees had previously been looking forward to meeting the Messiah, once they met Jesus, they really weren't looking forward to it anymore. It didn't really matter what he was preaching, it didn't matter who he was healing, it didn't even matter that he matched hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament prophecies because he just wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. All they could see was the blindfold that they had put on. That's what Jesus is actually talking about at the end of the story. See, they can see what he is, but they don't want to see. They would rather choose to be blind than to see Jesus. So the issue is really, they could only accept Jesus if he would compromise with what they wanted. And Jesus just wasn't in to compromising for them. They wanted Jesus plus something else. But Jesus wasn't willing to partner up. I want to spend our time today in understanding the three biggest blindfolds that the Pharisees willfully wore. Um, I've split these up into three, so religion, idols, and plans. If plans sounds mysterious, that's because there isn't a good word in the English language for what I'm talking about. We're going to talk about how in each of these areas, the Pharisees chose not to see who Jesus was, and how that stopped them from receiving Jesus for who he was, and how we can avoid doing the same thing. So let's dive in. To really get why the Pharisees hated Jesus, you sort of need to understand a little bit about who they were. They were very strict and meticulous in their beliefs. Every law was dissected and then rigorously followed. Sometimes, because of their zeal, they would actually impose an even higher standard than the already exacting standards of the Mosaic law. You might think that those kind of people would be natural friends and bedfellows of Jesus. You know, after all, didn't Jesus say that um, anyone who ignores even the smallest part of the law will be least in the kingdom of heaven? Doesn't he say to obey God? You know, that sounds just like the Pharisees in some way, but for all of that, Jesus is constantly clashing with the Pharisees. Why is that? I wonder if you've ever played one of those games of Monopoly that just goes on forever and ever. (laughs) Well, by way of analogy about the Pharisees, let me tell you about something that is worse than Monopoly. (laughs) So last Christmas, I found a board game in a charity shop called Triopoly. What luck! I thought, finally, a fresh new way to play Monopoly. So excited, I call my entire family around the table um, to play after dinner. The first hour passed, And, you know, how merrily we just carried on. You know, we're thinking how much better than Monopoly this is. We crowd, imagining all those plebs playing what we'd come to call Muggle Monopoly. (laughs) But you see, then the second hour passed. And the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. And it was now one in the morning. And we were all sat around the table in, in varying states of despair. But the game continued. We picked it up the next evening, determined to finish another five hours past, and another day, and another evening. Finally, after a total of three days of what felt like solid play, of only experiencing Triopoly, my dad and I sat across the table alone in the kitchen, too proud to quit. 
Perhaps we could no longer imagine a life without Tripoli. Maybe glimpsing a hint of dawn in the previously dark sky, we suddenly looked up at one another, no longer lost in our musings about the nature of eternity, and we gave up. Triopoly now sits in the back of our cupboard. You're welcome to it, by the way, if you want it. A monument to our folly and hubris. So, if you're wondering why on earth I'm telling you that story, the reason is quite simple. Games are meant to be fun. And what I'm saying is that the Pharisees are the kind of people who would not only play Triopoly all the way to the end of the game without giving up, but they would make you sit there and watch and enjoy them playing. That attitude in the Bible is called religion. The way they approached the law, it wasn't to, it was actually to ignore completely what it was for, fun, and turn it into an unwinnable competition. The problem with this attitude is that it is fundamentally incompatible with what Jesus taught about righteousness. So the law was never intended to be a checklist. Um, to use as a weapon against other people. It was always meant to help us to understand our need for God. It was always meant to help us um, get closer to Jesus, but the Pharisees had actually flipped it around and turned the law into a replacement for Jesus. Maybe that seems like a subtle distinction, but actually that's the difference between believing in the real Jesus who is uniquely able to rescue us from the consequences of our sin and having a sort of build-your-own-Jesus who can make us feel good but has no power. If I'm honest, I think maybe we all tend towards this attitude a little bit. I know that I certainly do. You know, we feel loved when we've avoided that one sin that we struggle with. We feel good about ourselves when we said our prayers. We feel proud when we stay the longest at the outreach. Maybe not you, but definitely me, I know that feeling. The thing is, it actually it doesn't have to be church. Actually, we can think that we're better than other people for a whole wide variety of reasons. It can be because we're cleverer, we're better read, or better dressed in my case, better paid, and so on. The truth about religion is that it doesn't matter how you measure yourself against other people. It's all about finding that one way that you're better than other people. What we see in the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees is that religion and the gospel of grace are totally incompatible with one another. The real Jesus can't live alongside our religion. He can't sit side by side with our attempts to justify ourselves. So if you're like me and you sometimes feel a bit qualified in your own right, maybe a bit worthy on your own terms, then I really hope that today you'll kind of join with me in just giving all of that up. There is no other way to experience the grace of God and the truth is there is no compromise here. Remember that famous moment that Jesus has with the rich young ruler. It didn't matter how nearly he measured up because he was desperate to measure up on his own terms, on his own righteousness. That's the risk that we play with religion. There is no quicker poison to the gospel than our own self-righteousness. There's no greater killer of joy than to try and mix Jesus and religion. It's like oil and water. i tell you something, though. There is a better way. Jesus came to put the fun back in the game. He came to fulfill the law in such a way that we could never be entangled in it ever again. 
If we really want to be free from the constant treadmill of the law and free from the just punishment of our sins, then there is only way, and that way is to completely and totally jettison our own self-righteousness and receive the free gift of Jesus' righteousness. You see, the Pharisees, they just couldn't do it. The reason they resist Jesus in today's passage is that they saw, but they didn't want to see. Their self-made rules and their self-invented superiority was just too precious to them to lose. Let's not make the same mistake as them, right? Anyone who seeks to gain his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for the sake of the gospel will gain it. And what a life Jesus has to offer for you today. He's offering you reconciliation with God. He's offering you friendship, companionship through thick and thin, a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. In short, he's offering you life and life in the fullest. But it all begins with giving up our own righteousness. The Pharisees, they just didn't see it. They didn't want to see it. They couldn't. And so they could never have what Jesus is offering. I think our question today is, what are we going to do? Let's talk about another facet of the Pharisees. And that's what motivates them. So from the outside, the Pharisees seem pretty devoted to God, actually. They do long prayers. They're continuously fasting. They're generously giving. You know, all the good stuff that a good Jewish boy is supposed to do. But when you scratch the surface, actually, you begin to see something slightly off. They pray their long prayers on street corners so that everyone can see them. When they fast, they cover themselves in ashes and wail so that everyone will know that they are fasting. And when they give, they come into the temple with big fanfares of trumpets and a parade so that everyone can see how much they give. You know, you can begin to see a pattern. They want to be well regarded. They want to be honoured in society and praised by people for their piety. The problem for the Pharisees is that Jesus didn't go in for any of that stuff. Jesus says that we should make our sacrifices as secret as possible to cut out any hint of pride. But you know, the thing is, the Pharisees need the approval of others so much. They so much need the fawning praise of others that they can't do it. It's not just another temptation for them. It's an idol. Now, perhaps an idol sounds to you something like you would just find it in a a pagan temple, but the actual truth about idols is that they are anything at all that we replace God with as our Lord and Saviour. We can idolise anything. Money, sex, power, thinness, popularity, success, rationality, comfort, just about anything. Some of those are good things, But they all make terrible gods because at their most fundamental level, idols can never provide us with what they really need. Idols work by promising and promising and promising without ever really delivering anything more than a continual hunger. That's where the Pharisees are today. They're so hungry for the regard of others that they're too full to receive Jesus. They can't let go of their idols so they'll defend them at any cost. They will ignore miracles. They will sling insults. They will chuck a guy out of the temple. Anything at all. Anything rather than let Jesus lay a glove on their idols. So, you know, there are a few simple questions 
I think, which sometimes help me to think about whether there are idols in my heart. What do I worry about? What do I want people to think of me? What annoys me more than it should? Where do I go for comfort? It's worth dwelling on these because idols are just like religion in one way. Jesus can't coexist with idols in our heart. And look, as much as I know it's deeply tempting for us to try and have a bit of everything, it's not possible. Jesus says you can't love God and money, but the truth is that it's not just God and money that clash. You can't serve two masters at the same time. Jesus is asking for our undivided attention. So Jesus is asking for more than just some of our money today, but all of our money. He's asking more than just some of our body, but all of it. He's asking for more than some of our time, but all of it. In reality, Jesus is asking for every single bit of our lives. All idols tossed out and nothing held in reserve. Now, I know this seems like a tall task, but I tell you something. The worst choice that we can make is to try and have it both ways. The Pharisees were hypocrites, but at least they went all out to get what they really wanted out of life. Every facet of their religion was not pointed towards God glorification, but towards self-glorification. If we stand with our feet in both camps, then the truth is we stand to lose everything. We'll never be truly happy in God, and we'll never really get what we secretly wish for. I think today, actually, Jesus is encouraging us to make a choice and make it with all of our hearts. You know, the difference is that unlike idols, Jesus is really really worth it. If we choose to make him the highest treasure in our hearts and the end of everything that we'll do, then our lives will never be the same ever again. We will experience life in a way that no idol could ever possibly provide it. If we give our all to Jesus, then nothing is wasted, everything is significant, and everything is purposeful. I think... That can be the most painful journey that a Christian can take. To genuinely throw away our idols, but the prize is so truly worth it. Today we should make our choice to toss away entirely everything that's holding us back from following Jesus. We need to give up that one sin that's haunting us. We need to choose to invest in the kingdom that will never end and not in experiences and treasures that will decay and pass away. The cost is that we cannot compromise. Look, I'm not standing here telling you that I'm perfect at this. Far from it. I am all too guilty of this. I see it in myself all the time. I'm always trying to have a bit of both, the best of both worlds, and keep my options open. But more and more, every day I realize it's a complete waste of life. More and more I understand that Jesus is the only way to be truly free the only way to be truly joyful, truly peaceful, truly loved, and truly satisfied. So I'll hope that you'll join with me today in choosing Jesus, either for the first time or for one more time. It doesn't matter how long you've left it. God is waiting today to welcome you back. Let's talk about one last way that Jesus is inconvenient for the Pharisees. When Jesus burst onto the scene, it was actually into quite a tricky political situation. So the Jewish people were under the heel of the Roman Empire, but actually they had a degree of protection and influence 
relatively free to govern their own affairs as long as they weren't too much trouble. Um, Jesus was pretty much a trouble incarnate. That's one of the reasons the Pharisees didn't get on with him. But despite all of that, despite all that they had, actually the Jewish people longed to be free. And they weren't without a reason to hope for that. There had been many times in the past when they had been under the heel of an oppressive empire and God had always come to rescue them. So since the final book of the Old Testament, they had hoped and longed for a coming Messiah who would rescue and restore them. And now that they were under the heel of the Roman Empire, they longed for it all the more. That expectation had reached fever pitch. You know, actually, many of them hoped that when the Messiah came, he would bring a conquering army. What they really wanted was for Jesus, well, the Messiah, to turn up and crush the Roman Empire, to really humiliate them and lead Israel back to glorious freedom. So it's against that background that Jesus arrives. And I think it's obvious that he's not quite what they were expecting. So Jesus is not warlike, but peaceful. He doesn't actually seem to be angry at the Roman Empire so much as he's angry at religious hypocrites. Um, His disciples aren't the people that the Pharisees like. His priorities aren't their priorities, and his plans are not the same as their plans. In short, Jesus just didn't fit the mold of Messiah. That's actually a really big problem for the Pharisees because the system that they were living in was really beneficial to them. You know, they were very well respected, they were honoured, people looked up to them, people wanted to be like them, basically, and all of that credibility hinged on the idea that they were the experts in God. So suddenly, Jesus turns up, claiming to be the Messiah, and he doesn't just tweak their theology a little bit here and there, just give it a quick brush up as they expected. Actually, he gets right to the heart of everything that they expect from God, and he turns it upside down. You know, so you can see that's simply, they saw who he was. They just didn't want him to be God. It just wasn't in their plans. They would rather that the Messiah didn't come than he came and turned out to be a man like Jesus. Because the truth is they would stand to lose everything in the most humiliating way possible. All that power would trickle away, all that influence, all that honor. The disciples would leave them as soon as they realized that everything they had been teaching was completely hollow. So the truth is that the Pharisees can see exactly who Jesus is, but they don't want to see. They could see him from a scriptural perspective, but they didn't want it to be the case. And so they resisted him. And it's a very revealing moment. Now, perhaps all of this seems like it couldn't possibly relate to us today. How can 2,000 years worth of politics possibly be any odds to us? Well, As usual, I think there's something universal hiding underneath the story. And I think the question that it asks of us is very simple. What do we do when Jesus doesn't fit our plans and priorities? So look, we may not want to overthrow an empire. But it is easy enough to find ourselves in a place where we're wishing that God was different. Or that his plans for our lives were different. You know, what do we do? The question is, when we feel like God is calling us to stay in a job that we don't like, what do we do when he asks us to forgive someone who's hurt us? Or what if he asks us to wait before having children, or to work on our marriage instead of ending it, or to spend more time with homeless people, or maybe more time with him, or 
worst of all, plant a church. There are a hundred different ways that following Jesus can mean that our plans and priorities bump up against his. And hundreds of ways in which being a Christian means choosing to follow Jesus' plans and priorities instead of our own. You know, perhaps some of the things that I said just there in that list just sort of resonated you, actually, or perhaps God brought something else to mind. But the Pharisees just couldn't get past the fact that believing and following Jesus would have meant giving up the way they wanted the world to pan out. They, more than anyone, could understand the stakes that they were playing with here. They knew who Jesus was, and they knew what he was offering. But even knowing all of that, they just couldn't do it. I wonder if you've ever been abseiling. I have. It's amazing fun when, once you get going, you know, bouncing down the wall and um, having that, just that little moment of slight freefall before you touch back safely on the wall. It's a brilliant mix of safety and danger. The problem with abseiling is that getting going with abseiling is pretty much the worst experience that a normally vertical human being can, can, can have. Um, you can't just slide gently down on the wall. You have to go from upright to horizontal. So I remember doing it as a small boy and watching person after person after person freeze at the top or somehow try to cheat the rotation process and strike a bargain with gravity. Alas, there is no compromise in abseiling. It's do or die, hopefully, not literally. I suppose the reason that I'm telling you all this is that I think sometimes we can be a bit like that, those people standing at the top of the wall, upright and wondering... Could abseiling possibly be worth those moments where our whole world is turned upside down? I sometimes look at the things that God has asked me to do with my life and sacrifice. I wonder if it's really worth it. I wonder if I can trust God and I wonder if he'll look after me. I don't know if you do too sometimes. It is true. If you follow Jesus, he will turn your whole world upside down but it is only by completely committing to that change that we can truly experience the eternal life that Jesus came to give us. It's the only way, just like abseiling, that we can experience the thrill. We have to take the plunge, and we have to lean back. You know, when we cling on to our own plans and priorities, we're a bit like people standing at the top of the wall and clinging on to it for all of our might, You see, it doesn't matter how tight our grip is, however tightly we hold on to our old life, we can never take it with us and also embrace the amazing life that Jesus has for us. We have to let go. There's no halfway house here. We can't stand upright and hope that things will work out. Today, I hope that you will join me in letting those last few fingers finally loose. If you're willing to trust Jesus with everything that you have, if you're willing to give up completely your right to steer your life, if you're willing to say that Jesus' way is the only way, then you are ready to have life and life in the fullest. Let's not let fear hold us back. Let's not give up and give in to our old way of life. Let's not hear the siren call of false security. Let's not choose the path of the Pharisees who saw but didn't want to see. 
They knew who Jesus was. They knew what he was offering. But they just couldn't fit him into the box that they had already constructed for the Messiah. You know, the reality is that today, Jesus is no more able to fit into my little box or your little box than he was into the box that the Pharisees had made. Let's have an encounter with Jesus. So I want to tell you in closing about another way in contrast to the way of the Pharisees. So they had all the religious knowledge that they needed to know who Jesus was, just the way that we do, but they wouldn't see it. They couldn't admit who Jesus was, who he was. They were too wedded to their own self-righteousness, their own idols, their own plans and their own priorities to even let him get a foot in the door. But the truth is there is no substitute for the real Jesus. It's very tempting to try and have a bit of both in our lives, a bit of pride, a bit of grace, a bit of our own way and a bit of Jesus' way, but the truth is that Jesus won't team up with any of that. He won't share the top spot in our heart, even with the things that we hold most dear, even if those things are good things. As hard as it sounds, Jesus is asking us today to drop the idea of Jesus plus anything and come back to the idea of Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing, that's the Jesus who we first fell in love with. That's the Jesus who rescued us. One of the most significant things we can do as Christians is to never let anything get in the way of the real Jesus. We simply have to take the blindfold off. I wonder if um, we would all just stand. So I'm aware, as I wrote this and as I preached, that it sounds a little bit like Jesus is constantly asking you to give things up and constantly asking you to make sacrifice and constantly asking you to be pious and self-disciplined. I know that's how some of this might have sounded today, but actually, let me tell you, the truth is far from that. The main reason that Jesus won't team up with our preconceived notions of his is that his way is so much better. Jesus is inviting us to drink deeply of his Holy Spirit, to gorge ourselves on the pleasures of his company, to throw away earthly comfort for heavenly peace, to replace fleeting happiness with eternal joy, to give up our small dreams for big dreams, to throw away our shabby old life for a shiny new one. You know, the reason that Jesus can't sit alongside anything in the top spot of our lives is that he simply has a better plan for us. Jesus' way leaves any other way of living in the dust. Jesus' resurrection life puts all imitators to shame. Today, I am not standing here saying, give up. I'm saying, take up. It's like this in every aspect of our Christian life. We try to cling on sometimes to fig leaf self-righteousness, but Jesus wants to give us his perfect righteousness. We try to earn back the debt of our salvation, but Jesus wants us to be free from our debts. Let's not be afraid of losing what we have so much that we miss what Jesus is freely offering us today. Look, there's no catch for this. It's all or nothing. We must be all in for Jesus today. 
We can't hold anything back. We have to have Jesus plus nothing. We have to take our blindfolds off. Look, there are a few responses to this message today. Um, I don't know about you, as I was preparing this, there were definitely things that God pinpointed to me in my heart, areas where I tried to let my self-righteousness get in the way of his, things that I loved just a little bit too much, and my plans for my life, where Jesus was saying, you've got to lay it all down. Look, I hope that God is speaking to you now. We're going to have a time of worship. But I pray that God speaks to you now, that he shows you that his way is a better way, that Jesus' joy, peace, plans, his grace, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his presence, his hand on your life is better than anything else. All we have to do is take our blindfolds off. If you're a Christian today, I just pray that as we worship, you'll take some time with God. Just listen to him. He's offering you a better way. The second thing is this. Maybe you have never truly stepped into Jesus' camp before. Maybe you've been a bit worried about taking your foot out of the camp of the world. But actually, I think Jesus is offering you today that fresh start, that new life that I've been talking about. Jesus didn't come to make you feel bad, guilty, condemned. He came to give you life. He came to free you. And Jesus is standing here today, if you've never made that choice, and saying to you, come to me. Choose my way. Hold nothing back. I am truly worth it. I'm just going to pray and then we'll worship. Father God, I thank you that your way is so wonderful. Your life is so incredible. God, everything that you're offering us is beyond our wildest dreams. God, we want to commit together today. It's me, it's all of us, God. We want to commit together today to hold nothing back, to leave nothing in reserve, God, but instead go all out for you. Leave everything at the foot of the cross and stand there with empty hands before Jesus saying, we need you. We want your way. We love you.